Life Audio. Hello, and welcome to Kainos Project. I'm Dale. I am Tamara. And we are here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. Well, there is something that happened here at the Kainos Project World Headquarters in beautiful downtown Corona, California, that was something of a tragedy earlier this week. It's probably the worst thing that could happen to our home on any given week. The and, worst? And that is that the Wi-Fi went down. Yes, the worst. The worst. Yes. And it turned into this whole ordeal. I had to go down to our internet provider and get a new modem, plug it in, then it didn't work. Then I had to reset our routers to factory settings. We have more than one router because our house has these thick brick walls and so we have to place them in different parts of the house so that the internet will work. I had to reset them to factory settings, still wouldn't work, had to call get the modem reset up. Again, this was like hours long, but finally, after many hours, long into the evening, I finally got our internet to work again. Uh, But what was crazy about that whole situation was that there was a warning signal that the Wi-Fi was going to go out earlier in the week. And it came from an unexpected source. And the canary in our Wi-Fi coal mine was the fact that you were not able to connect our air freshener (laughs) to our wireless connection. Can you explain to me why we need an air freshener on our Wi-Fi? Because it's a really good air freshener that actually works and it keeps your house smelling fresh with multiple scents. And you can put it on a timer and you can... Give it a nightlight. It's really great. This is like the Tesla of air fresheners. Okay, you're making me sound really bougie right now, and I'm not. But I do have a thing about my home smelling nice, and I have tested out many air fresheners throughout the years and have wasted a lot of money on ones that don't work, and I finally found one that works. You said, I just said I'm going to waste my money on one that works. Okay, well, you're welcome for giving you a really nice smelling home (laughs) and a nightlight so you're not stumbling over your own feet in the middle of the night. You're welcome. That's fair. And the next morning after I had plugged the Wi-Fi back in, um, I came to you, you were in the kitchen, I said, oh, were you able to get your air freshener plugged into the internet? And you said yes. And I said, okay, great. Problem solved. This was taking up a lot of our mental space this week. But Hey, (laughs) but... Okay, I know you're blaming it all on my air freshener, but I think it was God's providence that my air freshener didn't work because come Monday morning, we wouldn't have had internet. That's fair. That would have been real bad. Yeah, I would have been working on it on a Monday morning instead of a Saturday evening. Well, no, really, you wouldn't have been working on work. You would have spent hours and hours working on the internet and not getting any work done. And you were already frustrated on a Saturday evening. You would have been way more frustrated on a Monday morning. That is fair. That's a fair point. But this whole situation got me thinking, and I was asking you if the the air freshener was on the Wi-Fi. I was thinking like, wow, if I tried to explain to my great-grandparents' generation the problem that I was experiencing in my home over the weekend, let alone why we needed to connect an air freshener to the Wi-Fi, they would have no idea what I was talking about. They would think I was crazy. They'd say, what in tarnation, boy, are you talking about? Well, people even now probably think we're crazy that we have an air fresher on a Wi-Fi, but at least they would understand They can grasp the, the concept, concept at right? least. And really, so technology changes things. It changes the way we use our air fresheners. 
It changes the things we think about on a Saturday night, but it also changes how we understand morals and ethics. And so I thought, because of our air fresheners, that what we would talk about today is the intersection between technology and morality. And so we're going to dive into that in just a moment. Well, good day to you. It's Joel with The King Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith, and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. All right, so the morality of technology when it comes to air fresheners and beyond. What do you got? So air fresheners is not the topic of the day. And I wish you wouldn't have chosen that particular thing to really continue to bring up because um, it feels really silly. But They're really nice air fresheners. Thank you. But when you kind of break it down, it is kind of a decadent thing. Yeah, it... Oh, I don't like it. It feels icky now. Thank you for making my air freshener feel icky. You're the best. Smells good. Feels icky. Yeah. It feels... Yeah. Anyways, moving on. I'll go to therapy for that one. Uh, So the advancement of science and technology has definitely changed our morals and values. And it has really changed fundamentally the way that we live, the way that we operate, the way that we view the world, technology has given us power and choices in humanity that we never had before. Yeah, even like the light bulb. You can stay up late and do stuff right? that you couldn't do before you had a light bulb. Mm-hmm. So, for example, because of technology... Uh, we have actually redefined what it means to die. Mechanical ventilators allow a person's body to stay alive even after the brain ceases to function. You know, I'd actually read a story about this this past week where there was this pastor who was declared dead, but he was still, he was legally dead, but he was still on life support. Yeah. And then all of a sudden there was like brain activity. You know, like he came back from the dead, but he was, he never like, really died I guess but he was legally dead it's an interesting thing it is it's a it's a question that we've never had to answer before because when you were dead you were dead there was no technology that was bringing you back to life and so now because of the advancement of technology we have literally redefined what does it mean to be dead and we have to actually say is your physical body dead or are you just brain dead and how do you handle that from a moral perspective and an ethical perspective in terms of if someone is brain dead, but now because of technology, they are physically still alive in some way or another? Are they alive or are they dead? It's crazy because they had a death certificate and everything, but his heart was still beating. Yeah. So, I mean, it's very complicated. It is. And that's just like one example of the far reaches of technology and how it it hasn't only just advanced our society for good things, but it's actually made 
some of our decisions on morals and ethics quite complex and often difficult to reconcile. Yeah, and I think the two areas where this shows up, one is in areas of life and death. What is life? What does it mean to be pro-life? And then the other one would probably be sexual ethics. Sexual ethics has a lot more to do with technology than we probably would think firsthand. And I was thinking, how does technology change the way that we view sex and change the way that we understand sex? But it has dramatically changed the way that we view sex. And um, based on some recent studies that were done by an economics professor, his name was Jeremy Greenwood, and I know I'm going to get this guy's name wrong, and I apologize. I'm sure he's not listening, but I still apologize. Nazai Gunner, uh, they both conducted a research regarding the sexual revolution. Again, we're talking about technology, so it's just so interesting how they connect. But based on their research in 1900s, only 6% of unwed teenaged females engaged in premarital sex. Now, you have about three quarters of the unwed teenage female population engaging in premarital sex. Uh, The sexual revolution is studied here using an equilibrium matching model where... The cost of premarital sex fall over time due to the technological improvement in contraceptives. So with the technology of contraception, now comes the way that we view premarital sex. Before, for a young teenage girl to have sex prior to marriage, like... There's some serious risk associated. There's a lot of risk and... For lack of better terms, like when you do a cost benefit analysis as a young girl, like the cost and the risk of getting pregnant versus the benefit of enjoying sex in that moment of time, like the benefit just did not outweigh the cost. But now that we have contraceptives, you can engage in sexual activities and the likelihood of you having a baby or getting pregnant is far, far lower than it ever was before. Or even contracting some sort of venereal disease. Yeah, that's true. And so because of contraception, we've actually changed our moral and ethical stance on um, sex before marriage. What is interesting is how many people, young teenagers, would have no issues with sex before marriage, even in um, large religious communities that say, you know, sex before marriage is wrong and you shouldn't be doing it, or even communities where, like, the government is putting some kind of restrictions on sex before marriage. Even in those, like, more conservative, tight-knit communities, you still see an overwhelmingly positive affirmation for premarital sex. And a lot of that has been traced back to the invention of contraceptives. So the technological change facilitated the philosophical or the theological change and not necessarily the other way around. Right. In some ways, uh, our morality shapes the kind of technology we pursue, but then the technology that we have then shapes our morals in a lot of ways. Yeah, exactly. And we can go on and on about examples of how science has changed our world and our culture. Um, And it seems like with medical or biological advancements, humanity, um, every time we make these medical or biological advancements, um, there's always a cost to it. 
right? So when you have a benefit in some way happening, there's always some side of it that's like, man, that thing is really great, but then it has this trickling effect of causing this over here. And I think that's just a result of the fallen world we live in, that no matter how good something is, no matter how great the intentions are, no matter how great the motivation is, there is just going to be some kind of trickling negative effect that is going to be pretty harmful for society and even harmful for individuals. Yeah, so as we look at the Bible, what does the Bible have to say about technology? Like, is the Bible technology agnostic? Is it pro-technology? Is it anti-technology? Uh I mean, obviously, people in Jesus' time didn't have MacBook computers. Um, but what would what would the people of that day say about technology, or what how God feels about technology? So, obviously, technology, like you said, is not in the Bible. But well, I wouldn't um, say technology isn't in the Bible. It's just not like not, not in not in the ways right, not in the ways that we're seeing. Like the Tower of Babel, Babel was a technological <laughs> feat. That's true. Yes, I mean the pyramids. Mm-hmm. People still can't figure that out. Aliens, obviously. Of course. Yeah. Don't you um, watch the History Channel at 3 o'clock in the morning? No. It's all aliens. They yeah. built all that stuff. All aliens. All aliens. Sorry. <laughs> I slip up all the time when you don't make fun of me. So the one time I know. I just do, nod and I smile. Know, you do. You're like, yeah, yeah, that was great. And I pause like, did I say that word right? Sometimes words just don't come out correctly. Um, back to your question about what does the Bible have to say about technology? The... I think one of the solid stances of giving us some kind of a framework is found in Genesis 1, 28, and it's often referred to as the dominion mandate. And uh, this was God's first command to humanity. And so that verse says... Well, probably his second command. They messed up the first one. That's true. Fair. No, no. This one was first. This one came first. It did? Yeah, this came in Genesis 1. For them to not eat the fruit came in Genesis 2. Oh, yeah. So it is the first. Thank you. I stand corrected by myself. By yourself, yeah. I was just like, oh, yeah, you're right. I'm wrong, obviously. That's the way our <laughs> marriage works. Um, so Genesis one twenty eight says, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So again, this is known as the dominion mandate. And... It's really this call for humanity to exercise dominion over the earth that God created. Many believe that the way we carry this out, especially now, um, is through studying and understanding creation, which is science. Certainly science in the way we see it now is, is dramatically different than what was happening during the time of scripture. But even then, especially um, seeing their society being majorly agricultural society like they were always trying to manipulate how do we make sure our crops survive how do we grow them how do we get water to them like in this barren land they were always trying to find ways to have dominion over the earth so that they could survive at that point it was for pure survival and even too when you look at the commandments that god gave to them some of those were technological in nature like to let the land rest every seventh year Hmm. Um, there was a spiritual component to that of trusting in God for the crops that he would grow them. But there's also in farming technology, something about not overworking the land that's going to allow it to produce more. So even there's technological evidence to suggest that what God was telling them to do was a good thing. Hmm. 
I didn't even piece that together, but you're right. That would have been a, a technological command. That's so interesting. Yeah. Sorry. Look at this. I mean, I'm not a farmer, but I think that's right. You're not a farmer. That is accurate. Um, you figure out Wi-Fi connections and modems and stuff. Not farming. Uh, so science is really a gift from God that he has given to his people. He is the one that created our brains and our abilities to achieve and our abilities to research and our intrigue and all of those different elements that bring forth the technological advancements in science. But even in culture in general, it doesn't always have to necessarily be science. And I know that's a lot of what we're going to talk about on today's podcast, but really the idea of advancement and growing and creating new things to help our society flourish is truly a gift from God. And that comes out of the mandate that we are to have dominion over the earth. And and that's not to say we're supposed to rule over it and take it for everything it has and like suck the earth dry, which unfortunately I think we've done elements of that in our in our society and in our history and culture. We are shockingly proficient in doing that. Yeah. But there is an element that we are to have dominion and rule over, but in in form of stewarding God's creation well and in form of allowing society and humanity to flourish by using what God has given us under our feet and in front of us. Yeah, so we want to talk about some of the moral parameters of that, and we'll dive into that in just a second. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Okay, so we see technology in the Bible. We see it generally as a, if not a neutral thing, as a good thing. But there are moral parameters that we should pay attention to that the Bible kind of points to as well. Right. So we see technology as good, but not all technology and advancement in science is good. This is particularly true in like the complex areas of biotechnology and human cloning. Like things start to become questionable when we start to push science so far that we're just completely changing what God has created and 
now we have to question, is this really what we should be doing? What's so funny is I always think about like the Jurassic Park movies. (laughs) Just because you could. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And that's always what's happening. They're always pushing science so far. And then like the dinosaurs are eating everybody and they're creating bigger dinosaurs than creation ever had in the first place. And they're trying to like morph dinosaurs together. And I don't know how they stretched that into six movies, but they did. They did. And at least half of them were okay. (laughs) <laughs> that's true I'll tell you that much <laughs> you know even the last one was pretty entertaining right it was good yeah, yeah it was good we liked it so but I think Jurassic Park so beautifully explains how complex science can be and how if you push it too far it actually becomes more harm than it is good for society um, but there are just a great number of moral complexities that we see Um, as we weigh each advancement in science. And so as we, again, move back to Scripture and try and see what is it about this particular science, scientific development and scientific advancement should we be weighing, a lot of it needs to really go back to, is it consisting of human flourishing? Like, is science being used for the benefit of humanity? Or are we now just trying to completely change it so that life becomes easier in in sort of like a vanity type of a way? Yeah, I think one way that I had heard uh, one Christian ethicist put it, I think it was Scott Ray, where he talked about um, the measure of technology and whether we're using it correctly is whether it is helping us to reverse the effects of the human fall like the measure to which god created the earth and it was good and then it was broken are we finding ways through biotechnology and other technologies to restore something that was lost in a way that is congruent with the way that god created the world like when there's advancements in technology in cancer research that is reversing an effect of the fall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of areas in, in which that happens where we're disconnected. There are technologies that help connect us and that's reversing an effect of the fall. Um, and right. So, versus using technology just to make the world the way that we want it. To create it in our own image and yeah. take us away from what God would define as human flourishing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And ultimately I think each scientific advancement really needs to be evaluated and weighed against what it is accomplishing and exactly what you just said is it reversing the effects of the fall is that what it's moving towards or is it just so that we can create the world in the image and the likeness that we want it to look like and so a couple of examples which even in thinking about this podcast, some of them really took you me by surprise as I was like, oh, I didn't quite think about that technology through that lens. You said, I'm having way less moral dilemmas than I, than I should be having. <laughs> right. Well, it's really once you, you kind of take some time to get past the medical marketing and get past just the common understanding of what that thing is and what the world has told us that technology is and why the world has told us that technology is so great. I think one of the first examples um, clearly shows that because it's been around forever. Um, I guess in terms of it has existed since I've been alive. So that's the way that I explain forever. Uh, Birth control. So if you believe that God is the author of life and that that's 
life itself starts when the sperm and egg meet, then the moral dilemma of how certain birth controls work needs to be considered. So if a birth control prevents pregnancy by preventing the implementation of the fertilized egg, then this birth control that you're thinking of... It's a abortifacient. Yes. So to... It operates as... For the, the, just the biological uh, review for those of us who are out of study on these things. So in uh, conception, the sperm meets the egg, boom, that's where you have the beginnings of the, the human embryo. Then that embryo attaches to the uterus, and then that's where the baby starts to grow. But if life begins when the sperm meets the egg, if there is a birth control that just keeps it from implanting onto the uterus, then essentially there's a human life that was aborted at you know the earliest phase that you could do it. Um, but that's different from a birth control that prevents the sperm and the egg from meeting. Like right. there's a moral quandary there. Yes. And that, again, when we go back to what we understand science to be and what we understand certain advancements to be, I mean, growing up, that was not something I ever thought about. I was just like, great, you know, birth control. Which one do I want? Like you, you don't sit down and think through what are the morals and ethics of this particular uh, scientific advancement. And there's obviously a lot of options when it comes to birth control. And so just sitting down and thinking through that one a little bit more and holding to what is the biblical understanding of life and the sanctity of life and caring about that. And if we say we care about it, then we actually need to like think about how are the things we're doing countering the care that we have for life. Right. I mean, because if you're not informed on what type of birth control you're using, you could be very pro-life in your advocacy for Mm pro-life, but be using a form of contraception that is itself abortifacient. It's it's, it's abortion-like. Right. Because the doctor's not telling you like, here's how this birth control actually works. It's like, here's your options. Which one do you want? Here are the side effects. Like, maybe this one's good for you. Maybe this one's not good for you. But no one ever is actually sitting down and saying, this is how this one actually is preventing or stopping pregnancy. Yeah. I think adjacent to this is uh, in vitro fertilization, mm. which is itself a technology that reverses the effects of the fall and that people right. who are infertile, they can't have children, they can't conceive, um, that these embryos are... are are kind of created in a lab and then they are put into the woman's uterus. But because there's such a failure rate, um, there's like multiple embryos that are created and then they're stored. And um, a lot of times what ends up happening is you can have too many babies that begin to grow. um, And then there's questions about whether you should abort one or more of those babies, or there's these embryos that are sitting, you know, in a refrigerator that those are human lives. And do they have, rights you know is there a reasonable expectation that they are going to be given a chance at life um are they eventually going to be you know aborted and tossed aside um so even like this good thing of in vitro fertilization like the the incredible technological advancement that allows people who otherwise would not have been able to have children naturally uh to have children and the the that technology is a blessing, but there's also some serious moral questions involved in how to engage in that if you find yourself in that situation where that is an option available to you. 
Right. And that one is a double-edged sword, right? Because it, it has a lot of good in it, but then it leaves you with a lot of moral and ethical tension because you have to determine what happens with all of those other fertilized eggs, right? Yeah. That one's hard. And it's so sensitive. That's the thing that we have to keep in mind is these aren't just studies. These aren't just things that are on paper or happening in labs. Like this, the things we're talking about, the science we're talking about is affecting lives, right? Like birth control affects lives. IVF affects lives. And they're very personal to who you are. And they're very personal to uh, what you're hoping to come in your own life. I mean, those two particular ones are related to family planning, but... Yeah, so we, that's, there's a lot of moral questions at the beginning of life there. And then with technology, there's a lot of questions at the end of life, too. When you think about um, artificially keeping somebody alive who is, by any other definition, has passed away, um, what's the morality of just keeping them, their heart going and their breathing going, Um how long do you do that? What At what point do you stop doing that? At what point is it right to do it? At what point is it wrong to do it? Um, and you have people on both sides of that. Someone who's like, no, God has given us this advancement and we should keep them alive as long as possible. You don't know what God's going to do through that. You don't know what kind of miracle we're going to see. And then there's people on the other end that think people have a time to be born and people have a time to die. And why are we trying to prolong death instead of letting the natural order of things happen yeah i mean it's interesting because i can see both sides Mm -hmm. of that argument being valid to a certain extent depending on the it's all situational but well that one's god has appointed yeah god has appointed a time for us to live and a time for us to die but at the same time uh it is within the purview of human authority to prolong our lives as much as we can that's why we have cancer research that's why we have Mm. uh you know nutrition studies and uh, all kinds of technology that is going to keep us living healthier longer. And we're seeing that happen. Right. Like just in history of time, we are living longer as humanity. Like we're getting older. Yeah. Life expectancy is way up from previous generations. Right. And a lot of it is just like ratification of diseases and, you know, you're getting rid of all the things that are killing people, just malnutrition and, a lot of things that technology has helped us flourish as a society and allow people to live not only longer lives, but in many respects, healthier, um, more full lives, that it's not just about pure survival. I know that that's not necessarily true across the world, but definitely in America where we have a lot of these types of um, medical advancements and the ability to access such advancements, uh, you are seeing people be able to enjoy life rather than just be living for the sake of pure survival from day to day. Right. And then you come to the issue of physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia in some cases where mm-hmm. the possibility of survival is is looking grim for a person who has some kind of terminal disease. They are in a great deal of pain. Um, They know the end is coming and there's not a lot they can do about it. And so uh, many opt, you know, where it's legal to um, engage in physician assisted suicide or euthanasia to just kind of 
end it. And you can see the side of an extension of mercy on those people so they're not having to endure the pain and the suffering, right? A lot of the times when someone's terminally ill, that's usually the silver lining, I guess, is they're not in pain anymore and they're not enduring the the physical suffering anymore. And you kind of see death as a relief in a lot of ways and the idea of physician-assisted suicide is why would you not want to allow somebody to be relieved of that pain and suffering sooner? Isn't it an act of mercy, an act of love to make that an option? Right, but then at the end of the day, yeah, you're taking a life. You're taking a life. And if we're consistent in our exactly our pro-life ethic, then then there's, there's issues there. Of- well, and that even goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Is it our... Do we get the right to decide when someone should die? Or even as an individual, do you get that right of when your life is going to end? Yeah. That one is one that I come down less hard on where I can look at something like abortion and say, no, this is this is clearly something that's, that's grievous. Or I can look at, um, say, an unjust system of the death penalty where it's disproportionately putting uh, people of color and people on low income uh, in, in that situation where they're receiving the death penalty. They can say, that's egregious. This is one where I'm like, mm, I can't say that I agree, but I'm, I'm a lot softer. Well, you can be empathetic and understanding of why someone might want to make that choice or need to make that choice. And as someone not enduring that, someone not going through suffering and pain in that way, how can you say, no, you're not allowed to do this? It's hard. Yeah. And I think particularly of there are many people in my family, but I mean, obviously, um, I've talked about it on the podcast before, but my mom having passed away of cancer and seeing the kind of pain she was in, seeing how she completely changed. She was no longer the person that I called mom like she looked different she acted different like it was it was like she was just my mom wasn't there anymore and I yeah I don't know if she would have asked for physician assisted suicide like what would that have looked like for us and there's a real moment where you want someone you love to no longer be enduring pain and you seeing that happen day to day like it's in front of your face every day. Right. Yeah. It's easy to sit in a podcast room and, you know, pontificate about these mm-hmm. things. But so, it's, it's a lot more difficult when it's your family member. Right. When it's someone you love and they're just asking you, please let this pain end. Like, I'm not going to make it anyways. Why am I continuing to endure this? And some people, it's months and months. I mean, my mom was on hospice, which at that point you're terminally ill if they're putting you on hospice their goal is to just make you comfortable and but she was on hospice for over a year so I mean imagine if when she first was put on hospice she decided to make that choice like it's just you don't really know when life is going to end and you don't really know how your body is going to react and what's going to happen so yeah it's quite a science has given us quite a moral dilemma right it is yeah it has yeah. Um, and then there are other things that are neither end of life or beginning of life, but they're kind of midlife. And this is a big one right now. Uh, and that's something like gender reassignment surgery. 
That is a big one. There are lots of conversations happening around gender reassignment and uh, the morals and ethics around changing someone's gender, going through hormone therapy, going through the surgery to actually make that permanent change on their bodies and whether or not we have that right as humans to change who you were. And again, this goes back to should there be limits to science? Should there be limits to the ways that we can just change anything that we want to change? Um, but we can't take away the humanity of these decisions and why people are making these choices. I know particularly with this one, there's just been a lot of studies of... um most often this is happening when people are young, they're teenagers, like gender reassignment is happening in a very vulnerable time in someone's life when you're not actually sure of a whole lot of things about yourself personally. And then later on, there's like regret or there's even just physical damage happening of that hormone therapy and all the changes happening. And as a parent, this is even more heavy because you have your kid in front of you saying that they want a gender reassignment. But how do you know if that's what they're going to want 20 years from now? How do you know if that's truly where they are as a person? And let's say it is. Is that something that as people we should just be able to control? Yeah, I mean, and, you know, this is the kind of thing that will get you banned from Twitter and Facebook. But, I mean, there's a significant body of evidence to suggest that people that go through reassignment – that it doesn't end up leading them to a healthier, more whole place in their life. There's a a, a lot of evidence to suggest the opposite that it creates There's more a lot emotional of mental health turmoil. Right. Even when that happens to them as an adult, uh, let alone when they're um, still in an adolescent phase, um, and you know there are cultural pressures kind of pushing them towards this because to as a solution to whatever turmoil they're experiencing, which is very real. It's a very very real experience that they're having, but being pushed to a solution that isn't an answer to that turmoil, mm. um, even though the prevailing culture is is selling it as as the solution. Right. Um, and because we have the technology you, to do it, yeah. but it doesn't have the effect that we would hope it would have in most cases. And that kind of goes back to the fact that that that's not God's design for human flourishing. Mm. God's design for human flourishing is that your your gender and your sex would be aligned, uh, and that you'd be able to live into that identity. And that's easy for us to say, but that's but when those things get crossed, um, the solution isn't to lean into that that confusion, mm. but to uh, find some way to reconcile it. Yeah, and I think the argument against that is people say, well, this is just not the way it's supposed to be. And that's not a very helpful argument. I don't think that's a very good argument anyways because our world was not supposed to be covered in sin and, you know, dealing with the the fallen nature that we endure. Like, we weren't supposed to have cancer. We weren't supposed to have all of these other things that are in our world. So to say, oh, you shouldn't do that because that's not the way it's supposed to be. Like, well, what does that even mean? What What are you even saying at that point? You're just trying to, again, create the world to your own personal ideal. And just because something doesn't fit within your ideal doesn't mean we need to completely like throw it off the table. But I do think when it comes to this particular conversation about gender reassignment, 
we do have to see what is it that this is going to solve? What is it that this is going to resolve? And like you said, not to lean further into the confusion, but really figure out how do we reconcile that? Yeah. And I think that, you know, obviously there's, there's more freedom if you're an adult and you want to uh, utilize that technology and that's, you know, your worldview. Um, I think it's particularly egregious when it's our young people that because of kind of the cultural milieu are um, shaped in a way that Hmm. they are pushed in that direction and not necessarily forced, but just everything is is pulling them in that direction because of the, the, the stream of the the cultural climate is, is going in that direction. Yeah. And that's where you always have to weigh whatever is happening in society and even in technology you have to weigh it against what we see in scripture and what are those parameters that we see. And so when it comes to scientific development, is it not rewinding the fall, but is it, is it helping us overcome some of these things that are just results of the fall? Right. Yeah. And it's hard to parse those out sometimes. It's hard to parse out what is the fall and what is like just... Just life. (laughs) What is life and what is the the corruptness of our culture because we all are swimming in the water we're swimming in. And for us, I mean, there's a lot of stuff happening around us in our culture like, oh, that all makes sense. That makes sense. That makes sense. For previous generations, like, none of this makes sense. This is all crazy. You guys have like lost your minds. And I know for you and I, we're like, oh, I can see that. I can I can see why this is happening around me. I can see why these groups of people are doing this type of thing. And that's because, of course, this is the water that we've been swimming in the whole time. But for older generations, this is not the water they've been swimming in. This is like complete shock. Yeah. And they're like, what are you talking about? An air freshener in the Wi-Fi? What is yes. Wi-Fi? What is Wi-Fi? What is the Wi-Fi? Yeah. yeah. Speaking of Wi-Fi, there's another one. I actually read a study, I think it was yesterday, from Lifeway Research, and they did this in partnership, I think, with Air, where they were um, – oh, no. This, that was a different one. Not Air. That was a separate one. This one was Lifeway Research. They oh, were – Did they partner uh, with anybody at all? I don't they think they partnered. I, I read they so, many, so many I read so much, and I'm just so smart that I just like can't keep track of all my brilliant thoughts. I mean, other people's brilliant thoughts. But they they did this research, and they were gauging where people stood on their theological convictions. And they were able to track that for people who identified as Christians, there were a lot of their theological convictions from the last time they surveyed them that remained the same. But one thing that they noted is that coming out of the pandemic, people's theology of going to church had changed because we had spent so much time uh, in church online because of the pandemic. Again, church online, wow. this technology that reverses the effect of the fall, we can't come together because there's a global pandemic, people are dying, hospitals are overrun, the whole thing. There was this good thing, this stop measure in the gap that even though we can't be together physically, we can still gather online. But the presence of that technology not only changed people's habits because you, you don't go to church physically for a year and then you try to get back into it, your habits are different, it's tough to break that momentum but beyond that it actually changed people's theology of church where they said well maybe it's not that important to god because you know Mm. i didn't go for a year and i don't feel like i'm going to hell and so maybe like my theology was you know i'm i was a little bit too uh, uptight about that and so it's kind of an interesting thing how 
um, we use the technology because of our theology. We want to gather in the best way that we can, but then that, that technology then ends up shaping us. Wow. That's an interesting study. Yeah, it's pretty And crazy. that makes sense because I have heard a lot of people either really sink their heels into like, we cannot cease gathering together. The pandemic has proven how harmful that is to our churches, how harmful that is to community when we stop gathering together. And then you have people on the other end, they're like, Nothing we bad don't happened need when to. we stopped, yeah. Nothing happened. I'm fine. Like, I still went to church. I mean, that's a whole completely like long conversation about what is the church really and what is the body of Christ and community and what does that actually mean? Does it mean just showing up and sitting in a seat on Sunday listening to a pastor preach and going home? Is that church? Is that community? Uh, Is that the body of Christ? Is that any different than sitting on your couch and watching it? Like if you're actually not engaging with anyone anyways. But again... That's another really, really good example of how technology has completely changed the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we live. And wouldn't you know it, even what we think about God. Yeah, it's crazy. Wow. So at the end of the day, what we're trying to say is we don't have any of these questions answered. Right, but science is not bad. Like, we know that much. (laughs) Moral of the day, solid. Four and a half stars out of five. Like science. Science is not a bad thing. We don't have to fear it. And it's good for us. Like we should use it. It's part of like what God has given us to exercise that dominion mandate over creation. Uh, In fact, science has been helpful in human flourishing. And a lot of what you've been saying, just confronting the effects of sin in our world. That's huge. Like, why would we not want to utilize science in those ways? Uh, but with each science advancement and medical procedure, we have to look to scripture to be a guard and to be a compass as we evaluate that particular scientific development. So we need scripture to be that guiding parameter as we make a choice on whether this is right or whether this is wrong and the answers, unfortunately, are not always as easy as we would like them to be. Yeah, and I think the reason why we don't have a lot of the answers here, one is because we're, we're, not, we're, not, we're not that smart, uh, and two, because a lot of these things are very situational, what the, mm-hmm. the morality of that situation is going to be mm-hmm. uh, on that very specific situation, particularly when we're talking about medical decisions and those kinds of things. Um, so really... Uh, we just want to shine a light on the fact that there are these moral and ethical questions at play. And so if you're faced with any of a number of these decisions, that these are things that really need to be worked out with discernment, with uh, prayer, with wise counsel, and kind of move forward with these things in the context of community and hopefully uh, make the most moral choice. Thanks for listening to the Kainos Project podcast. Thank you also to our partners at Life Audio. Visit lifeaudio.com to find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in the network, including shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and review. And be sure to visit our website, kainosproject.com, for more helpful resources. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.
I'm Don Hawkins, and I once heard Chick-fil-A founder Truett Cathy say, you can tell if a person needs encouragement, check to see if they're breathing. I'd like to invite you to my weekly podcast, Encouragement for You, featuring encouraging guests like Dr. Greg and Aaron Smalley, Dan Cathy, the late Dr. Frank Menrith, Josh McDowell, and more. To subscribe to my weekly Encouragement for You podcast, go to lifeaudio.com. That's lifeaudio.com.